The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word to us. Hey, what's up? How are we doing? Aren't you guys fired up to talk about gender and sexuality? I know I am. Hey, uh, it, it's, it's good to be with you guys. It's been a while since I've been here and uh, we've been praying for you guys at Frontline Downtown and I bring love and greetings from our members there. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that we get to walk through the book of Genesis and I'm thankful that today we get to open God's word and talk about God's vision for gender and sexuality. And so I wanna pray for you, ask you to pray for me and we're gonna do some work together. Uh, Father, I thank you so much that that which is true is also beautiful. And I pray that today as we open your word, as we wrestle with what it means to be men and women in the image of God, as we wrestle with marriage, we pray, Lord, that we would see that your vision actually is compelling, it's liberating, it's powerful, it's mysterious, and it's good. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would shape us and form us and that you would give us grace and that you would speak to us today We really need your help. Help us, Lord. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our lives to you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, uh, let me say a couple of things as we dive into this together. The the first thing I want to mention is that the thing that makes a biblical vision for marriage and sexuality so challenging is not as much that the culture is really confused. It's that we're talking about mysteries. And I say that because Christianity was actually planted in the Greco-Roman world. And in the midst of that cultural context, there was just as much licentiousness as there is in our day. There was just as much objectification as there is in our day. There was just as much sexual violence and sexual confusion and sexual depravity in their day as in our day. The thing that makes this topic uh, a perennial danger for the people of God is because the Bible says that when we talk about gender and sexuality, we're actually talking about mystery. We're talking about mystery. And as mystery, that means that when we talk about what it means to be men and women in the image of God and men and women in the context of marriage, we're talking about things that bring us to contested ground, to dangerous ground, 
and thirdly, to holy ground. Let me, let me read to you from C.S. Lewis. Uh, one of the most famous things he ever wrote, he said this, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with whom we joke and work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. When we talk about gender and sexuality, we're talking about the mystery of being. We're talking about the mystery of the gospel. And we're talking about something that actually gives us a picture of the living God. So as we dive into this today, let, let me just say three things by way of pastoral introduction. Uh, three things that I think reflects the heart of the pastors of our church. Uh, first of all, I wanna be really clear whatever you believe about marriage and gender and sexuality, I wanna say upfront that the living God actually loves you. He loves you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the love of God pursuing you, redeeming you, and working in your life to set that which has been broken to rights. So at the end of the day, the thing that I want you to see most clearly is that marriage is actually a picture of the pursuit of God. It's a picture of the heart of God. It's a picture of the desire of God to reconcile us to him. In addition, I wanna say up front that, that today's talk is probably gonna raise as many questions as it brings answers. There, there was one prominent Christian leader that lectured on gender and sexuality for 89 weeks. And it's not lost on me that if I tried to do that, I would get fired. Um, but the point is, this is a really complicated topic. And there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of particular areas of brokenness and confusion and things that we've experienced. And as such, I wanna be really clear, Frontline Church is a church that actually values good faith doubt and skepticism and dialogue. We actually believe that the best place to learn is in the context of community with open Bibles and with honesty. And so today is going to, I hope, shine light on God's vision, but it's also gonna shine light on places where we're probably a bit confused. Now, with all that in mind, in Jesus's two most in-depth teachings on sex and gender, he did something fascinating. When, when people questioned Jesus, particularly around marriage and divorce, Jesus always did two things. He would simultaneously point back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he would affirm the goodness of what God created in the realm of sexuality. And then at the very same time, Jesus would point to the end of history. He would point to the new heavens and the new earth to point us to where sexuality is heading. So today we're gonna do three things, three things. Uh, and we need a lot of grace. We need a lot of help to do this. Number one, we're gonna talk about the beginning. We're gonna open up Genesis chapter two, and we're gonna wrestle with the beautiful vision of God for gender and sexuality. Then we're gonna talk about the big picture. How does God's vision for gender and sexuality fit into the entire story of the Bible? How does it connect to the end? And then we're gonna do just a little bit of work around what does this mean for you and me today in marriage and in singleness? So let's go to the beginning. Take your Bible, Genesis chapter two. There's four things, four things, and you need all four of these things if you're gonna have a biblical anthropology, if you're gonna wrestle with who are people and what are people for and why did God envision human beings as engendered sexual creatures, you need to hold all four because all four really matter. 
We need to hold on to the unity of man and woman, that which we share in common. You need to hold on to the diversity of man and woman, that which is different and distinct. You need to wrestle with the interdependence of man and woman, that we actually need each other. And we need to understand the tragedy of the fall and how that's affected the totality of our being. So let's start with the unity of man and woman. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it means to be image bearers of God. And this is where any conversation that seeks to be biblical in an understanding of gender has to start. This is Genesis chapter one. Let me read a couple of verses to you, starting in verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Any biblical conversation about gender and sexuality has to start with affirming that which men and women share in common. And what men and women share in common is profound. Both men and women were created in the image of God and the image of God, as we saw two weeks ago, has three big dynamics. It's relationship with God, just as cars were created to run on gasoline, human beings were created for relationship with our creator. To be an image finds its meaning in relationship with the original. And both man and woman were created for communion with God and created for a depth of communion with one another. Secondly, Both men and women were created to reflect God, to point to the glory and beauty of God. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was on a backcountry elk hunt in Colorado. It was a super remote unit. It was amazing. Surrounded by the Rocky Mountains, seeing moose every day, hearing elk every day. And in a place like that, I can be tempted to think that if you really want to get a clear picture of God, go to wild places. Go to the Pacific Ocean, go to the Rocky Mountains, look at the Himalayas. And it's true that the Bible affirms that all of creation reflects the glory of God. All of creation has the fingerprints of God on it, but there is nothing God has ever created, including angelic beings that reflect the glory and beauty of God in more fullness than human beings. Man and woman were, reflected, were created to reflect the glory, the splendor and the beauty of God. And we share that in common, both man and woman as image bearers. And the third dynamic of imaging God is that both men and women were created to represent God. They were created to take dominion and to fill the earth with the glory of God, to actually use their creativity and their capacity to fill all of creation with the glory of God. So stop here for just a second and let me name as clearly as I know how to name it. If we're going to figure out what it means to be a man in the image of God and a woman in the image of God and how we're to relate to one another in respect and honor, that has to start with standing in the middle of all the common ground that we share as image bearers of God. And what happens historically is that when we reduce what women, what women and men share in common, evil and darkness ensues. If you take even a cursory look back at ancient history, what you're gonna find is when we forget the unity of man and woman, what's happened again and again is the subjugation and the objectification of women. This is a horrible hall of shame for ancient teachers, let me just mention a few. Plato 
and all the ways that he affected Western civilization, we have to reckon with the fact that his view of women was not a biblical view. He once wrote that the worst fate for a man would, to be, would be reincarnation as a woman. Aristotle once wrote this. He said, females are imperfect males, accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. Jewish historian Josephus once wrote, the woman is inferior to man in every way. We could go to many passages in the Quran that reflect a low view of women. I'll give you just one. It says men have authority over women because Allah has made one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them, send them to beds apart and beat them. And if you look back at even some of the patristic fathers, there's ways in which even some of the early theologians in the church were more influenced by the culture's view of men and women than by the Bible. Now, lest we fall into what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, thinking that we've evolved past all that, we have to note that modern culture hasn't fared much better. Objectification and violence are still at work. We live in a culture where over... $3,000 is spent every single second on porn that's degrading and objectifying of women. So sex-selective abortions continue to be epidemic worldwide. Uh, the UN Population Fund estimates that there's 143 million women and girls that are not alive today because of that. This stat blew my mind. The number of American troops killed in Afghanistan and Iraq between 2001 and 2012 was 6,488. During that same period, the number of American women that were murdered by current or ex-partners was 11,766. That's roughly double the number of all the troops that we lost in the same period. One in three women will experience severe physical violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. And sadly, what we find is that the least, the least likely group of men to abuse women, to neglect their wives, to divorce their wives, are men that actually go to church with conservative theological underpinnings and read their Bible and actually attend, while the most likely group of men in America to abuse their wives and divorce their wives are men that claim allegiance to a conservative American denomination without actually going to church and loving Jesus. And what I want to say, what I want to say up front is that there is no room in a biblical church, there's no room in a church that loves Jesus for the objectification and the abuse of women. And I would say to my sisters, if you're in a situation where you're feeling intimidated, you're feeling bullied, you're in an oppressive marriage, then the pastors of this church would do everything in our ability to try to come alongside you and help you. We wanna, we wanna be there to protect and we wanna be there to defend because that's the heart of your heavenly father. And if you're a man in our church and you've been around the language of headship, but you don't actually know Jesus and you think headship of the home means that you're entitled, that you can be a dictator, that you can be a tyrant. What I would say to you is if you don't repent of that, you're actually contradicting the heart of God, the father, and you're moving towards impending judgment. If you don't repent, there's no room. There's no room in the church for a low view of women or for thinking that headship means 
entitlement. First Peter chapter three tells us that if husbands aren't showing honor to their wives, their prayers will be hindered. Now, for the most part, everybody in our church, when we talk about that side of the equation says, amen, that's right, that makes sense. That's good and that's true. But let me also mention, even if it means that I turn into a human pinata to get beat up on the internet, let me also mention that radical and reactionary feminism is another way that we move away from God's vision of unity between men and women. And it's not lost on me that in particular, first wave feminism came out of a response to historic inequality. But in our particular moment, sayings like women need men like fish need bicycles are tragic. And in our culture, to discount 50% of the human race as toxic because of their gender does a great disservice to men. And it's an evil thing to say to little boys. And what I want you to hear from me and from God's word is that any ideology, any ideology that pits man against woman or woman against man is not from God. It's inherently demonic because God's vision is that men and women would both be image bearers that would reflect the glory of God. We are unified, unified as human beings in the image of God, but we're also diverse. We're also diverse. And the diversity of man and woman is beautiful. Both man and woman share glory as humans and both carry unique engendered glory. Men and women are equal, but not interchangeable. And I wanna pause here for just a second and say, one of the most demonic lies of our culture is to try to tell us that to embrace equality is to embrace sameness. And the Bible is really clear that equality as image bearers of God doesn't reduce the unique ways that women are called to glorify God and that men are called to glorify God. There is diversity. Let me give you just a few things to think about from Genesis chapter two. A few things about the diversity of man and woman. First of all, we see that Adam was created outside of the garden and then he was placed inside of the garden to do two things and both are really important, to work it and to keep it. This is Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden of, in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now track with me on this. Both Adam and Eve were called to take dominion of the earth. They were both called to fulfill the cultural mandate. But Adam had a unique responsibility within that mandate to cultivate and to keep. And those two words from the Hebrew that we get work and keep are really important. The word work comes from the Hebrew word abad. The word shamar comes from, or the word uh, keep comes from the Hebrew word shamar. And in the Old Testament, when work and keep, abad and shamar are used together, they almost always are referring to the priestly duty of protecting the sanctity of either the tabernacle or the temple. The idea being that God created Adam as a guardian, a protector, a bodyguard, and a gatekeeper of the sanctity of the temple that God created in Eden. And though both Adam and Eve were kings and queens that were called to fill the earth with the glory of God, God did give Adam unique responsibility as a priestly watchman who was designed with holy aggression to actually defend his wife, defend the garden and fight for the goodness of glory and glory of God in that place. Now track with me on this. This is deeply connected to why priests in the Old Testament 
and why apostles and elders in the New Testament are exclusively male. It has nothing to do with greater rationality. Men are not more rational than women. It has nothing to do with greater intelligence to which anybody that's had a conversation could say amen. It, it has nothing to do with heightened capacity. The reason that priests in the Old Testament and apostles and elders in the New Testament are exclusively male is because those roles are fatherly roles and God designed men to actually reflect the heart of Father God in protecting and in keeping. This is why the biological parallel is that men are somewhere between 70 and 90% stronger in upper body than women are. Not because they're designed to be better, but because biology parallels the spiritual. God designed men to actually lay down their lives for their wives, for their children, and for the presence of God filling the place that God had called them to abide in. Now, in the midst of that, the Bible affirms that Adam's order in creation doesn't on any level make him better than his bride, but it does give him unique responsibility to initiate, to lead, to protect, and to serve as one who will give an account to God. And what we're gonna find in a couple of weeks when we get to the fall of Adam and Eve is that even though both Adam and Eve are responsible as adult human beings, that the first conversation that God wants to have after they disobey God is a conversation with Adam because Adam was called to protect and to defend his wife. And the same thing is true all these thousands of years later if things are off track in our families, the first conversation that God's gonna have brothers is gonna be with you as a father and as a husband. Now, ladies, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook. That doesn't mean that you won't give an account to God. Every human being is gonna stand before God and give an account for what we do in this life. But there's a unique responsibility that's reflective, as we're gonna see in a minute, of Jesus that men are supposed to walk out. But in the midst of that calling, the Bible's also really clear that Adam has profound limitations. The Bible says it's not good for the man to be alone. And this should be really surprising. If you've been with us the last few weeks, everything that God's created up to this point, God's declared good. It's been a chorus of it's good, it's good, it's good. And then all of a sudden we get to Genesis 2.18 and the Lord God says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then in verses 29 through 20 or 19 through 20, God starts to bring the Adam, he starts to bring the animals to Adam for Adam to name. And in the midst of the naming of the animals, Adam comes to a realization even pre-fall that even though there's pairing within the animals of complementarity and difference, there is no such pairing for him. Even though he gets to enjoy the presence of God, something is profoundly lacking and missing in his interpersonal communion. And God says something amazing about Eve. He says that she is to be a helper fit for him. Now, can we pause here for just a second and talk about what that means? That sounds, sounds at the best like a less than position. At the worst, it sounds pejorative. It's like she was created to be a helper. Like, is she supposed to get him like a latte at the end of a hard day? Is she a personal assistant? Is she a secretary? But here's what you got to understand. The Hebrew words for helper corresponding to him are profound words. Helper comes from the word ezer, which literally means lifesaver. And corresponding 
corresponding to him comes from the word connecto, which means opposite, but corresponding to or equal to him. This is in no way God implying a lesser than role for Eve because what we find in the Old Testament is that the word ezer is used 21 times, two times it describes women and 19 different times it describes the work of God in coming to the aid of Israel. This is a picture of God saying that she is going to be a helper who's going to be equal to him and corresponding to him. She's going to be like him, but other than him in ways that reflect the beauty of God. Let me read to you from a lady named Abigail Favalli. She wrote an awesome book called The Genesis of Gender. I highly recommend it to all of you. Here's how she puts it. At last... He, Adam, immediately recognizes in the silent declaration of Eve's body that she is both like him, more like him than any other creature, and not like him. Their difference is complementary, but asymmetrical. This is not a mirror image or a polar opposite. She resembles him in their shared humanity, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, but she differs in the feminine form of her humanity. Genesis affirms, a balance of sameness and difference between the sexes. This is a delicate balance that's difficult but necessary to maintain. Most theories of gender lose this balance, veering into extremes of uniformity, men and women are interchangeable, or polarity, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Both extremes lose the fruitful tension expressed here in Genesis. This is a picture, this is a picture of both sameness and otherness that we're going to see in just a couple of minutes is actually pointing beyond itself to something deeper and something even more profound. Adam is ish, man. Eve is Isha, woman. They're alike, but they're different. And God brings them together. And in bringing them together, what we find is that man is not independent from the woman nor woman from the man. Their independence is profound. Then at last, he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Eve was created to complement Adam in her likeness and in her otherness, and they fit together in their difference, and they fit together in their shared glory. And in this moment, God actually walks Eve down the aisle like a proud father, and Adam breaks out into poetry. And in that poetry, as the two become one, we don't only have the beginning of human civilization, but we also have one of the most profound pictures of who God is. Here's how one great theologian, Herman Bavinck, put it. He said, God made the two out of one so that he can make the two into one, one soul in one flesh. The two in oneness of husband and wife expands with a child into a three in oneness. Father, mother, and child are one soul and one flesh expanding and unfolding in one image of God united within threefold diversity and diverse within harmonic unity. Their unity in the threefold cord that binds together and sustains all relationships within human society. 
in the midst of their union, which is unitive and procreative and marked with pleasure and intimacy, in their union, God is affirming, God is affirming the beauty of man and woman, and he's actually telling us something about himself that we can't forget. Now, before we get to that, let me just say this. Genesis chapter two affirms with a loud voice that it is good to be a man and it is good to be a woman. That it's good to actually share common humanity and it's good to have engendered glory that's different. The Bible affirms that God loves women in femininity. He loves men in masculinity. And it's Satan who actually hates men in masculinity. And it's Satan that hates women and femininity. And in the grand story of creation, both man and woman, equal in value and dignity, but not interchangeable, are pointing beyond themselves to something that's even bigger than the importance of family and carrying on the human race. But before we get to that, we have to talk about what breaks. In two weeks, we're going to talk about the tragedy of the fall. We're going to look at what it means and how it's affected the totality of our being, our bodies and our spirits. But let me just mention a few things as it relates to gender and sexuality. A few things that go tragically wrong at the fall. First of all, we find that Eden, that Eve, the Ezer, she helps Adam to sin. She helps him to sin. This is Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So like, think about this. Part of the unique engendered glory of Eve was to be this lifesaver, and she uses her power and her influence instead of to save life, but she uses it to bring death. Unless we think that Adam was like off doing a quiet time, reading his Bible and obeying the Lord, he was standing right by her and Adam fails in his unique gendered glory. He fails to watch and keep. He was with her and he ate. And in the midst of that, their communion with each other profoundly broke. They go from being naked and unashamed to actually being aware of their nakedness and shame setting in. And in this moment, The tragedy of Adam is that instead of repenting, he actually blames God and he blames Eve. This is Genesis chapter three, verse 11. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree, which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This is the beginning of the two sides of one coin that all the sons of Adam, we all struggle with both passivity and violence. Adam's work as a cultivator is going to now be frustrated and Eve's work as the mother of all the living is going to be frustrated. And in the midst of all of the beautiful engendered glory that God gave them to reflect his goodness, all of that becomes some of the places where we most clearly hear the groaning of creation. The greater the gift the more profoundly painful when it goes wrong. And what God gave Adam and Eve in gender and sexuality was a profound and powerful gift that actually has affected the totality of what it means to be a human when it gets turned inward away from God. This becomes the source of some of our greatest loneliness, some of our deepest shame, some of our most powerful disordered desires, 
Some of the most deeply troubling biological realities, like the pain of infertility, the brokenness of our homes and relationships. And in the midst of all of that brokenness, God does something profound. Instead of turning his back and handing Adam and Eve and all of humanity over to darkness and sin, he makes a promise. This is Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's God saying that in the fullness of time, there's gonna be an offspring of woman who's gonna be damaged by the serpent, but his work is gonna crush the head of the serpent, setting to rights everything that broke. And in this moment, we have this powerful reminder of what the entirety of the Bible is about. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's not a life coaching book. It's not first and foremost, a compilation of great heroes and villains so that we can memorize moral stories. The Bible is first and foremost, God's self-disclosure in Jesus that points to what he's doing to redeem all things. And this leads us to the thing that's mind-blowing about gender and sexuality. Friends, the Bible is bookended with marriages. If you're a nerd like me and you've either watched the movies a hundred times or you've read the books dozens of times, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you have your own favorite part. Uh, my favorite part. My favorite part of Lord of the Rings is Sam's question to Frodo, where he says, I wonder what kind of tale we've fallen into. I think that's like one of the most powerful theological questions. That's one of the most powerful philosophical questions. What he's actually wrestling with is what's behind this story? What is it that's behind the curtain of the cosmos? What's at work in the world in which we live? And the way you answer that question is going to affect where you go for meaning, where you go for identity, how you suffer, how you live. Is this a world of chaos? of cold indifference or of karma where you just sort of get what you deserve and we're just sort of repeating cycles of history again and again and again? Is this the world of the deist where God created it and then he said, good luck and threw it into space? Like uh, if you've seen the devil's advocate, Al Pacino plays Satan and he raises his fist at God and he says, you are an absentee landlord. Is that the world in which we live? Are the nihilists right that like at the end of the day, we're heading towards not just our own personal death, but our sun burning out and everything that we would say should last forever and should have eternal meaning all gets forgotten in the blink of an eye and nothing really matters. Well, friends, listen, like the reason the Bible starts with a wedding and it ends with a wedding is because God is saying that what's actually behind the universe, what actually makes the most sense of the story is not chaos or even sin or even death. The Bible declares on every page that the story that we're actually living in is best described as a love story. That doesn't mean that it's about romantic love between a man and a woman, but it does mean that romantic love between a man and a woman actually brings us to the most clear picture we could possibly have of what God is doing. It actually points us beyond the sign to the things signified. Our sexuality, our gender are deep and mysterious because they point us 
with visible embodiment to an invisible truth, even in our brokenness and pain, they remind us that in the fullness of time, a better Adam comes to redeem his bride. And in the midst of that redemption, what we find, what we find is that all of the longings of Father God in the Old Testament where it describes again and again that God was like a husband going after Israel, his bride, and she lacked the ability to be faithful. She kept going to other lovers. She kept turning to other gods. All through the Old Testament, it equates idolatry with adultery. She could not be faithful. Israel could not be true to her husband, Yahweh. And in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up And what we actually have is his cousin pointing to Jesus as the bridegroom that came for the bride. And Jesus actually pursues his bride and woos his bride and loves his bride and goes to the cross to die for his bride. And Paul makes sense of everything that we just read and what it means to be human beings on an even deeper level in Ephesians chapter five, when he says this, Ephesians five, he says, therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's simply quoting from Genesis. But then he says something that would have blown the minds of his hearers in verse 32. He says, the mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Listen, God doesn't in the fullness of time send Jesus to die for his people, to love his people, to lead his people into freedom and then have the light bulb go off and think, oh, you know what? Marriage is kind of a cool picture of this. Let's go back and say that marriage is sort of an example. No, no, no. The Bible actually is really clear that God created marriage itself. He created the complementarity between man and woman. He created the intimacy of marriage, the two becoming one as a picture of the kind of communion, the kind of fellowship, the kind of delight that he created us to enjoy that only Jesus can bring us into. This is why at the end of the Bible, it ends with the marriage supper of the lamb, where we all raise a glass to Jesus, the bridegroom that is one as bride. The point of marriage and sexuality, and this in no way belittles singleness. We've, we've preached a lot of sermons on singleness and I can't preach a sermon on marriage and singleness at the same time, but you can go back and listen to them. This in no way belittles a Christian high view of singleness, but what it actually tells us is that Marriage itself, leaving and cleaving, the two becoming one, at the end of the day, was never ultimately about marriage. It's ultimately about the thing that you and me were created for most deeply, which is to actually be brought into fellowship with the living God, which is what Jesus accomplished. And in the midst of all of the confusions down here, as one author put it, where big romance tells us that the one exists and you were created for the one and happiness is basically asking the one to carry all the freight for your life, which is one of the reasons that so often we get frustrated with marriage because it can't answer those deepest longings. What the Bible actually tells us is that marriage is not the ultimate Jesus says that one day marriage will be done away with because once the perfect comes, there's no need for signs. There's no need for for mere reflections when you actually see with the naked eye what you were created for. 
And so the Bible would uphold the goodness of marriage because it points to Jesus and the church and the goodness of singleness because it points past marriage to what you were already created for in Jesus. In the midst of all that, it actually calls husbands to love their wives like Jesus loves the church and wives to receive their husbands like the church receives Jesus because one of the clearest sermons we could possibly give the world of the gospel is biblical Christian marriage. One of the greatest gifts we could possibly give our kids is not just telling them that Jesus died on a cross for the church and pursues the church and loves the church, but one of the greatest pictures that we could possibly give our kids is a dad and a husband that's willing to repent of sin and love his wife and a wife that's willing to receive and honor her husband because in that union, what you actually have is this powerful, amazing in fleshing of things that are invisible in ways that can be seen. And what I so want for our church is for us to actually go to war, go to war with all the weird ideologies, not out there, but in here and in here, that try to stoke enmity and rivalry and competition between the sexes so that we can actually get to the place where we receive gender and sexuality as good gifts that need to be redeemed that point us past the gifts to the giver. So here's what I want to do. If you, if you guys would stand with me. And I want you to take a second and just bow your heads and close your eyes. And whether you're married or single in the room, the insidious work of the evil one is to take good gifts and to try to make them ultimate. That's what happened in the fall. Marriage was never meant to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul because marriage is a sign and a symbol of the depth of relationship with the living God that you were created to enjoy. That doesn't lessen the goodness of Marriage and sexuality, like the Bible says that he that finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The Bible has a high view of that. But there's all kinds of places in the room where we're missing the fact that the thing signified is greater than the sign. And that which is being signified in marriage in the otherness of man and woman being brought together in communion, that's actually a picture. It's whispering to us of the ultimate otherness of God and the fact that we were made for communion with him. So God, I wanna pray for my friends in here that uh, you would give us grace and strength to take freight off of marriage that it was never meant to carry. To stop asking our spouse to be our savior, our redeemer. I wanna ask you that you would deliver us from enmity where the world wants to stoke comparison and competition, either with like macho, gross, Jesus dishonoring views of masculinity as superior, or as entitled, 
or gross demonic enmity where women think that they can only find freedom and fulfillment if men are belittled and brought down. And I want to ask you that you would actually do a work in our church to help brothers and sisters, husbands and wives to receive each other and to honor each other and to relate as engendered beings. That in the new heavens and the new earth, they're not going to be married, but we're still going to be men and women. And I want to pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and give us faith to even as we come to the Lord's Supper, to repent of places where we further the cycle of brokenness as the gift has gone wrong. I want to pray for my brothers that you would give us grace in singleness to honor women and in marriage to actually reflect Jesus to our wives. I want to pray for my sisters that you would deliver them from trying to ask guys, men, or a man to be what only the living God can be. And I want to pray that places where um, dads and husbands that claim the name of Christian but actually didn't reflect the heart of Jesus, I want to pray that you would bring healing to those places. With nobody looking around for just a second, um, there's a University of Virginia sociologist that did an in-depth study of marriage practice in the US. I referenced it at the beginning and he found that men that just check a box and claim to be a part of a theologically conservative denomination, but don't actually read their Bibles, don't go to church, don't pray, are literally the most likely group in America to be abusive to their wives and to divorce their wives. Because they're like around language of headship and differentiation of gender, but they don't know Jesus. So they don't know what it means. And they think it means entitlement. Whereas men that actually are a part of theologically conservative denominations and churches that actually go to church and read their Bibles are the least likely group in America to be violent or abusive to their wives and the least likely group in America to divorce their wives. I think we could talk about that for hours and the implications, but the point that I'm trying to make, brothers, is like our relationship with Jesus and whether or not it's serious and sober and real and the pursuit of Jesus actually does have the greatest bearing for all the other areas of our life than we could possibly imagine. It's gonna determine whether or not we are repentant and humble and open whether or not we're arrogant and prideful and closed off. And Father, I just want to ask that if there's sisters in the room that watched a dad that claimed to be a Christian mistreat their mom or mistreat them, I just pray that today they would like experience beginnings of deep healing as they see that that's not the heart of their heavenly father that you're not okay with that, Jesus is not okay with that, and your word's not okay with that. I wanna pray for marriages in the room, Lord, that you would bring us back to a place of being 
naked and unashamed with our spouse. That, um, that that would encompass the totality of communion with each other that you were created, that you created us to enjoy in marriage. I pray that today even we would have some conversations with our wives and conversations with our husbands about bringing Jesus back to the very center of our relationship. Because Jesus is the point of marriage. As we come to the Lord's Supper with a lot of things to talk to the Lord about and pray with each other about, we wanna invite all Christians to this meal. And if you're not a Christian, we'd ask you to not eat this meal because it won't help you without faith in Jesus. But if you're a believer in Christ today, come and take the bread and remember that the love of God was manifest in Jesus, that he was broken so that we could be made whole. Take the cup. Remember all the blessings and benefits of the new covenant that we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that we actually have been brought into communion with the triune God, sins forgiven, our future assured. And we have fuel, we have power, we have grace to actually repent of sin and to receive again today, freedom from guilt and freedom from shame and freedom from bondage. So you're invited to come when you're ready to come eat, to come drink, to come receive afresh the grace of God.